0: Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain, and most importantly, help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS combined charities page, or other charities such as Shelter or local charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, it's David Asiloff here, and uh, four friends and uh, and the person who booked this, Charlie, they do a webcast to raise money for the NHS. The website is havewegotplanningnewsforyou.com. So I'd like to give a shout-out to welcome to Season 2 for havewegotplanningnewsforyou.com. And don't forget your charity donation. It goes to a great cause. Hoff, off off. Oh. Hello.
0: And welcome to season two of Have We Got Planning News For You? Or Hoff, We Got Planning News For You, as surely will now forever be known. And in case you're wondering, yes, that really was him. It was only $300. um, And and I think I've probably peaked in my entire life now. It's going to go downhill from there. Um, Thank you all for (laughs) joining us. Uh, We hope you've had a great summer break. uh, And what a quiet, news-free summer it's been for the planning world. Uh, there's, there's a huge amount to talk about this episode and beyond, as everyone's thinking on the planning white paper develops, along with all the other recent measures, the flurry of decisions, and of course, there's a, a bit of sweet irony uh, in, in that we came together to provide some news and entertainment to you during the lockdown in the spring, and just as season two begins, some of the restrictions are back. And uh, spare a thought in particular for the Seven Dwarfs, because for Monday they can only meet a group of six. One of them isn't happy. I'll get my coat. Um, on a serious note, uh, please do consider making a, a charity donation to the NHS Combined Charities page, which obviously uh, remain highly relevant in light of the latest news, um, or a local charity of your choice. Um, as you just seen, we've made a few tweaks to our opening sequence, not least. Um, The Ruby Tuesdays, uh, uh, Paul's son's band uh, with their fantastic music. Um, But the basic format of the show is going to remain as per season one. In in particular, please do keep the questions and banter coming in the Q&A box. Uh, That's the best bit. Um, And from from now on in every week in season two, at least one of our questions for our special guests will be chosen from those submitted on the Q&A. So please do keep those coming. Chris will be doing the audience question uh, today. Uh, On the subject of special guests, we're extremely lucky uh, to have as our opening guest of season two, uh, Joanna Avery. Joanna, welcome. Um, we're, we're so Hi, lucky.
2: thanks. Good to be
0: here. And I'm right to think it's your first week in the role. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we're on day four. Day four. So be gentle. We certainly will. We're, we're, we're very, very grateful for you to coming coming on when you've got so much uh, to be getting on with in the in the job. Um, perhaps you could tell us where are you um, this evening and, and what are you drinking?
2: Uh, I'm in uh, Wimbledon Park and I have a glass of water. <laughs> uh, like many, I'm um, this evening. This is about hour ten of uh, Zooms and Teams calls, so I'm trying to keep hydrated and on the right side of uh, of sober.
0: <laughs> well, by juxtaposition tradition, make us all look like we've got a serious problem. I'm sure. <laughs> now it's, it's time to introduce the the regular panel. Uh, we're still negotiating with the half to join us on a full time basis, so in the meantime, it's just the five of us regulars. Um, so starting with Mary, um, can you say the usual: who you are, where you're calling from, and what you're drinking? But let's. Add Add in as well, as it's the first time you've been back for a while, what you've been up to since the end of season one. Uh, Mary, over to you. Not in Wandsworth, shock horror.
3: No, thank you very much. Good evening everybody. I am back in the office in the city and I've had a glorious summer, uh, mainly spent in Cornwall to be frank, where the, the weather has been reasonably kind to me and I've drunk a lot of gin. But tonight <laughs> I am on the wagon and I'm drinking some lemonata And I'm sitting here with my headphones on, imagining that I'm on a jet plane, off to meet the hof.
4: Love it. Uh, uh, Paul. Uh, Hello Charlie, how are you doing? Um, I'm in Lancashire. Um, I've moved my desk around so you can (laughs) see my bookshop, it's all very exciting. Uh, And in honour of the Hof, I've got some Californian IPA and I've not mirrored my screen, so Mm -hmm. I've no idea what it tastes like. It says it's citrusy and sessionable. I've no idea what that means. (laughs) Um, I've had a a great summer. Uh, I had a week in Wales, which was lovely. And then I've had three online appeals and an EIP. So I've been filling my time quite busily. I'm now tired and need a holiday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Sasha, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Charlie. I'm very well, and please see your humour has declined over the summer. Um, <laughs> I, I am in London. I'm near Mary. I'm in the city, and I am drinking water because, as you all know, I'm a professional athlete now. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, I want to say to all our Spurs followers, I'm also known as Mr. Two Trophies White, because since we stopped in the interlude, Arsenal won two trophies, just like to remind our viewers of that. I'd also like to, today's a very special day because it's the first day I've been able to sit in comfort for a month since cycling 1,400 (laughs) kilometres. And I would like to thank all our viewers who helped me raise £17,000 for the Samaritan. Thank you very much.
0: Bravo. Um, Chris, uh, tell us where where you are.
5: (laughs) I am in quarantine, okay. And I'm not happy about it. We went to France, we got caught out. Uh, I'm growing a beard at a protest. Um, we went to the door Dordogne. I mean, that is virtually Gloucestershire now, OK? It's just <laughs> completely unnecessary. It's been almost 14 days since my last souffle. There are no slots at Ocado, OK? This is some kind of middle-class hell, all right? But uh, in all seriousness, um, there have been people who've been seriously ill from this. And one of those uh, is one of the nicest people I know, Simon Prescott. He has been very ill with coronavirus since the um, pandemic broke and he went to Cheltenham races of all things. And so to Simon, I just wish you um, all the best. Get well soon. He's on the road to recovery. But um, there's a lot of people to think about that this has affected
0: Absolutely, Chris. Chris, um, I-, I went shopping today and I-, I got you a present, by the way. I'll send
5: it over in the post. <laughs> I'm gonna need it. I'm gonna need it. Oh, by the way, I'm drinking a French beer, uh, Mont-Pasier, uh... mont pee. See <laughs> oh, <pee. laughs> There's not uh, water! <laughs> 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 the French isn't that good! <laughs>
0: Well, um, for those who don't know me, I'm Charlie Banner, I- I'm uh, from Keating Chambers, which is where I am right now, um, and I'm drinking, in honour of the man himself, the Hoff, I am drinking Malibu, which I'm not sure I've had since um, I was about 16, uh, <laughs> an underage drinker, and so I'm slightly dreading what, the, what it tastes like, but, uh, and I have got as a backup some West Coast classic um, pale ale, given that uh, Mr Hasselhoff is himself a West Coast classic. Oh,
1: Charlie, I'm sure you ordered that last week when we met for a drink. <laughs> oh, what, the Malibu or the West Coast classic? Malibu. No, definitely
0: not. Definitely not. Definitely not. Um, I was waiting for Paul to say that underage drinking was about three years ago in my, in my <laughs> <laughs> um, Now, um, on to the serious stuff. And, and rather than our usual one or two core cases of the week uh, and planning appeal decisions of the week, uh, given how much we've got to get through, um, in terms of the flurry of decisions that have come out whilst we've been away. Um, what we're going to do in this first episode is do a slightly quicker than usual trot through the various case and decisions. Uh, and Paul, you're going to start us off with uh, a planning appeal from Chorley. Uh,
4: I, I am. Um, somebody seems to have stolen my script and replaced it because I, I hadn't been expecting to talk about the uh, site in Belper where the Secretary of State granted consent, notwithstanding the impact on the World Heritage Site. Uh, but my script's been replaced by um, a pear tree farm case in Exton, which remarkably is one of Chris's wings, uh, wins. So I'm not sure how that's happened. Um, and, and can I save uh, Chris's modesty? Because I know that he's very quiet on social media, so uh, he's not advertised <laughs> this very much. So this has barely got any any currency. So it's a decision from the start of, uh, uh, of August, when Chris, I think, was leaving Tresco and heading off to France. It's a, a scheme for 180 dwellings. Uh, in Chorley uh, on safeguarded land uh, in a local plan which expired in 2026 Um, main issues centrally were were five-year land supply where the policies were out of date particularly the the safeguarded land policy Um, and there was a debate between the two parties Uh, there was a core strategy figure of about 400 um, but everybody agreed that was out of date Um, the standard methodology figure is about 570 um, and everybody agreed that was the standard methodology figure Um, But the council uh, had jointly agreed with two other councils a Memorandum of Understanding to redistribute the standard methodology figure for the three councils and so the council was saying that whilst the Memorandum of Understanding had limited weight as policy or may not have been policy at all, um, that they wanted to use the revised figure to calculate that five-year land supply which gave you about 280. So the question is whether there was a five-year land supply centrally turned upon whether it was the revised figure redistributed between three different authorities or the standardized methodology figure. It is very clear from the length of the case and from the multiple emails that Chris and I had during the time of the appeal that this was a hard-fought case uh, and was a case where every point was was, uh, uh, was scrubbed and scraped for and, uh, I'm happy to say from Chris's perspective, uh, succeeded because the inspector said uh, that the bit of the PPG the council was relying upon to say you could redistribute your housing requirement uh, relates to plan making, not to decision taking in terms of assessing the requirement. So that essentially won the point. The inspector went on to look at what the contents of the MLU was and said it's a material consideration, uh, but nonetheless concluded that there wasn't a five-year land supply. I've got a little bit of interest in that, and Chris will tell you a little bit more about some parallel litigation in a few moments. Um, but essentially, that was the point, notwithstanding that there have been past cases, something about St. Modwins, I don't know if, if you remember anything about that, Chris, I'm not sure what that case was about. But the inspector said essentially, uh, that the standardised methodology is the one for the districts, and that's what you use for the purposes of your five year land supply. He went on to conclude that the safeguarding land policy was out of date as well, which is uh, the killer. So um, it's an interesting decision. It's a decision in terms of whether or not you can Fiddle with the standardised methodology as an authority when you're swapping and changing between authorities, and, and that's certainly this inspector concluded, my Caden concluded, no, you can't. So it's a, a decision of some little importance. And Chris, if I might suggest, you might want to put that on LinkedIn. Uh, just a thought. Um, I, I did also just want to touch upon a, a case, for another case from the northwest, uh, but very briefly, it's a Court of Appeal case involving Peel Holdings, uh, which involved two. Um, two housing cases which went to the Court of Appeal. They've been dismissed on appeal uh, by the Secretary of State. They went in front of Mr Justice Dove to try and quash the, they, they quash, quash the dismissed appeals. Ultimately went in the hands of the Court of Appeal. Uh, and Lord Justice Baker uh, had a very, very important thing to say, which was whether policies are out of date is a matter of planning judgment. It's not a matter of law. Um, central points, but paragraph 71 of the judgment, that's the central point. That's the, 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 the big point to drag out of that. I've got to say though, in that case, the conclusion that the plan was up to date, even though it was a plan from 2006, where all the strategic housing policies uh, had been dropped. So it's just the safe bits, and it related to a to a land to a, a countryside protection type policy. Um, the conclusion was that the, the plan was up to date. I, I find that a little difficult to understand, but nonetheless, it's a matter of planning judgment for the inspectors to come to. Um, possibly a rationality challenge but there we are so two cases for the price of one uh, the Chorley case involving somebody called Chris Young whoever he is
0: thanks Paul um, I'm so pleased that you, uh, you mentioned the the uh, uh, Modern case I've got somewhere in fact my, my screen's not working but I've got somewhere some wonderful photos of that site in Melton um, which Stephen Hunt very kindly took me just to remind you and Chris of of that battle that you you both fought um, a few few years ago um, Chris um, tell us more about that parallel litigation is
5: that the Wayne Holmes case? Yeah, it is the Wayne Holmes case. It's the same um, joint core strategy area. So it's uh, it's Chorley in Preston and it's South Ribble, quite near to where Paul lives. And um, here we see a council arguing a different case uh, from that case, just uh, to demonstrate such things can be a bit inconsistent. So there was an application for 100 homes um, in South Ribble, but an address in Preston. Um, It was refused by the council. There was an appeal. The appeal was dismissed by the inspector. Um, There was then a challenge to the decision, and it came before, again, Mr Justice Dove. um, And Mr Justice Dove allowed the challenge. Um, He might have been influenced to some extent by the fact that the Secretary of State conceded the case. So although um, it was continued to be thought, the Secretary of State had already conceded. Um, The critical issue, there was a dust-up over the five-year land supply. Um, What that meant, uh, really, and what it revolved around was a single issue. Had there been a review of um, the core strategy policy such that um, it would then amount to a a different situation? So what we've got, we've got the council arguing that they um, can... Uh, use the standard methodology, but redistribute the housing according to a memorandum of understanding. That's the bit that engages with uh, the High Court case in the St. Modwin case, rather than the Court of Appeal, and then we've got on the other side, it being argued um, that that wasn't any form of review. Now, what what happened was um, the council accepted the standard method figures, uh, but it said it wasn't a review. It was just them looking at the evidence um, and uh, it shouldn't be treated as a review in respect to footnote 37 of the MPPF and um, the Secretary of State conceded that that was wrong, it clearly was a review and what the court quashed it on was the inspector's reasoning and an error of fact and the claimant was successful, Wayne Holmes was successful in demonstrating um, that the inspector had, had got that wrong what this raises is fundamental issues about the standard method, adopting the standard method and attempts by councils to run away from the standard method um, if it doesn't suit them, if they want to redistribute housing. That's what the issue is about. So my goodness, isn't that relevant as we go forward with the proposed um, move to more focus on the standard, standard method? Um, those are the facts of the case.
0: Thanks, Chris. Of course, proponents of the white paper proposals might say all of that might, uh, all that sort of litigation and dispute might get uh, eliminated under the new reforms, but um, others might say it just gets decanted to earlier in the process when the MHCLG do their divvying. So, more to discuss on that in due course. Um, Mary, you're going to tell us about an appeal in Tiptree.
3: Yes, I'm going to take you to Tiptree. And at one level, this is another sort of housing land supply um, appeal. But in this particular case, um, in large part, um, I, I, I have some sympathy with, uh, with the appellant. Um, we sometimes find, don't we, that when we're, uh, the case depends upon whether the sites are deliverable, that circumstances can change between the date of the appeal and then when you finally get uh, on, as it were. And in, in this particular case, Uh, a lot of the um, contested sites had been the subject of an earlier appeal which had been allowed on the basis of no five-year housing land supply, but in this particular case, the inspector considered what had occurred in the meantime and actually found against law and decided in the end that the uh, authority were able to demonstrate a deliverable supply. On another level, um, the site was part, part of the site was identified in the emerging local plan, but because that local plan hadn 't reached an advanced stage, had not been um, submitted for examination, everybody agreed that limited weight could be given to that point again, there was an emerging neighborhood plan very early on in the process limited weight could be given to that. Uh, Another thing that was a nail in the coffin for Blore Holmes, the appellant, was that the inspector found that the proposal would have a damaging effect on the gap between Tiptree and Tiptree Heath, which he found would be damaging to both. A, A particular point of interest, I think, is the fact that this was in a mineral safeguarding area, a lot of evidence on this topic. Uh, read paragraphs 104 to 134, and it's a it's a good example of how to deal with this issue. And the evidence showed that the extraction of the mineral was not actually a viable option. So the appellants went to a lot of trouble on this, and they succeeded on this point, but sadly didn't prevail overall. The thing I want to draw out is that it was actually a written reps appeal. The, the um, it was dealt with between the 11th of June and the 24th of July. You will recall that the Business and Planning Act received Royal Assent on the 22nd of July and that you will remember that section 319 a subsection 2 of the 1990 Act has been modified. This This is the statutory authority for PINs now deciding instead of an appeal being appropriate either as a hearing or a public inquiry or written reps That's now been modified so that they can decide if one or more of the following ways are appropriate. Remember all that when you are lodging appeals now, folks, because you might want to be suggesting that a combination of uh, the three modes is appropriate. Interestingly, in this written rep appeal, the inspector issued 17 documents, two related to case management, seven were related to seven... Uh, related to questions he had to answer, uh, uh, sorry, ask on the specific topics, three related to questions he had on conditions and undertakings. One was a letter from him to the Home Secretary, and the other was a letter from PINs to the Parish Council saying their request for recovery uh, had been refused. So some interesting observations really just on the fact that um, it's a written reps appeal with a very interactive inspector, and I reckon we'll see a lot more of that. Disappointingly, I have to say, at the end on the overall planning balance, the inspector, having said that he he gave um, uh, great significant weight to uh, open market and affordable housing, then somewhat denigrated, in my view, those benefits by just describing them as run-of-the-mill matters. Now, I don't think in the current climate you could describe... Um, the provision of homes and affordable homes is simply run-of-the-mill, a run-of-the-mill matter. So I, d- I think that's, that's disappointing. I don't think that really reflects government's um,
0: imperatives, but that's Tiptree. Thanks, Mary. I think you make a very good point about the, the combined procedures. I, mean, I, I can't imagine in, in, uh, in a number of written reps' cases it could be much fun being an inspector, when, when increasingly you've got more and more complex schemes, more and more complex issues being dealt with by written reps. And you can't ask anybody, uh, ordinarily at least. Um, well, now you
3: can. Now you can phone a friend. Now you can phone the parties.
0: Absolutely. You can say, well, look, there's this one issue. I'd really appreciate a one-hour Zoom, Zoom discussion, um, for example, this particular issue. And I think, um, you know, I, I personally would encourage inspectors to consider, if anyone's, anyone's watching, encourage inspectors to consider that in difficult cases. It can be done without extending the process very long, and it, and it may make your job easier. Um, now, uh, Sasha, you're going to tell us about the second of, of, uh, second decision from working well we've
1: covered uh, since we began uh, this whole venture. Um, what's all that one? I wanted to say two things before I deal with that case. The first is I wanted to say that I, in the paper this morning it's announced that Lord Justice Limblom is the senior president of tribunals, and I think we should all have a shout out to him as a superb appointment. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't think of a better person to fill that role genuinely, Um, and I wanted to second of all say I'm noticing a trend, it's interesting how Chris and Paul are willing to slap each other on the back and commend them for their appeal decisions, but I always seem to be dealing with my own decisions because no one else is willing to say what a great job I've done, (laughs) so I'm going to bore you all with yet another victory of mine at Wokingham. which I represented the LPA, and I just wanted to talk about that. I think what Mary said is really interesting. We're in a completely new world for the determination of appeals and the mode, because in this one, we started on the 14th of March, and I remember saying to the inspector, actually on the 10th of March, and Paul's colleague, John Barrett, and I said to the inspector on the morning, listen, should we start taking into account COVID? And he said, no, no, I don't think we need to. Don't worry about COVID. Let's just plough on. The second week, we got a message from the inspectorate saying all inquiries are suspended. So that shows the, the rapidity of events last March or March, which seemed about 18 years ago, let alone six months. But in this appeal, it's interesting, it was a, a formal inquiry. We did the first four days, then the parties agreed in the summer to continue with it as a written representation appeal. It was a hybrid and it was determined on the 25th of August. So very interesting in terms of process. In terms of decision, um, all of us advise on probably the most tricky areas, chapter nine, sustainability. What does it actually mean in terms of making alternative means of transport available? And we all, some of us, are more bullish than others. I think arguably it's the most subjective point we discuss An inspectors approach to it. We've all argued that sites are sustainable in our opening speech. Sometimes there's a bus once a month, other times there's one every five minutes. But in this case, it is noteworthy that the inspector placed very heavy um, consideration, not just on quantitative matters, i.e. how far was it to walk to anywhere, but qualitative matters and the quality of walk. So very interesting on sustainability conclusions. And I also think the other thing I'd tell people to look at is it is COVID. It's third in the series, in 1, Barnsley decision, and now this which opines on the effect of COVID-19 on HLS. And in this decision, the general theme is reinforced that it's too early to really make judgments on the effect of COVID on the five-year housing land supply. I'm sure that will change and soon, because obviously the events of yesterday soon will be in a position where there will be material effects on the supply of housing that will be noted in decision letters. But at the moment, there are free appeals, all of which say it's too early to comment. So, those are my takeouts from from the Wokingham appeal decision for our audience.
0: Thanks, Ash. I've also see, I've certainly seen it. Maybe you you guys have too. Uh, and Mary on on the effect of COVID on viability. Um, has started to come into play in viability appraisals too. Um, I'm briefly going to deal with the brain tradition. Before I do, uh, I, I've got to report that on WhatsApp, I've got a message from somebody saying, they can't quite work out, Chris, whether your be- beard stroke handlebar Matash is uh, hairy biker or mad scientist, uh, or a combination of the two.
4: <laughs> I, I've had somebody deluded uh, who sent me a message saying, has Chris been replaced by James McAvoy? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
5: it, it, yeah, uh, just, just keep it coming. Oh, we will, <laughs> we, were, we were. Um,
0: So Braintree, very, very quickly, um, successful appeal by Gladman for a large greenfield um, unallocated development in Essex. Um, by the time we got to the inquiry, the main issues were landscape and heritage. Um, and the original application in outline was for up to 300 dwellings, but before the inquiry, they put in an alternative illustrative layout uh, for a proposal involving up to 265 dwellings. And they promoted both um, a, the 300 unit and the 265 variant um, uh, in parallel, albeit the Gladman said uh, to the inspector that it's necessary to be prepared to accept a limit on the outline permission if granted uh, to 265 and this was a pretty decisive call by their team, uh, by Glabman and their team, because though the inspector found that neither scheme would have any unacceptable or any real significant heritage harm, she oh. found there was a critical difference in the uh, two schemes landscape and visual impacts. The smaller 265 scheme would only have a slight adverse uh, impact which didn't override the scheme's benefits under the tilted balance which applied due to the lack of a five-year supply, but the 300 uh, dwellings version would have a considerably greater impact was unacceptable and so she accepted their invitation to impose that limit and uh, it seems to me that was a a great tactical hand played by those promoting the appeal including Jonathan Easton who is listening so well done Jonathan Um, and a good illustration of um, how the flexibility presented by an outline application can provide Wheatcroft compliant, Wheatcroft and Hoban Studios being the main Decisions on the principles about amending applications um, that we can get Wheatcroft compliant opportunities for tweaking proposals on appeal in response to the reasons for refusal. Um, so, um, a good illustration of how Wheatcroft and an outline application can lead to success. Um, now, uh, Chris, you're going to tell us about um, some of the legislative um, changes that have been going on whilst we've been away.
5: I am. So there's been lots and lots going on in relation to uh, permitted development, but um, uh, you know what? Well, I think most people have um, have come to listen to Joanna. That's my feeling. We can do PD yes. rights later. So can we go to that. Let's okay. go straight,
0: to, straight straight to Joanna. Um, so Mary, you're going to um, start um, with uh, asking Joanna a few questions.
3: Yes, I am. Thank you very much. And thank you, Joanna, for being so patient with us uh, and uh, li- and looking very interested, if I may say so. Exciting <laughs> <laughs> day-to-day lives, for which I commend you. Now, I've you- got a good
2: camera face.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. You have become Chief Planner at an extraordinary moment in time, I feel. Uh, But first of all, I just wondered, on a sort of human and personal level, what are your first impressions of working uh, at government at, at this level? Do share.
2: Well, I've been in and around Whitehall pretty much all my career. Um, uh, I remember well in 1991, uh, going up the old escalators, which they were in Marsham Street, in old Mm Marsham Street, and sitting in rooms with, if you can remember, sort of uh, photographs of aeroplanes on walls, (laughs) do you remember, Uh, doing doing the best practice guide to PPG13, now that really dates me, which is the first time we tried to do integrated transport and planning. Uh, And then also doing open space planning for London for ELPAC. Um, and then doing one of the first four world city studies the comparative studies of London Paris New York and Tokyo and doing that with people like Peter Hall so I've been in and around Whitehall for a long time and also in my role at at CABE at Commission for Architecture and Built Environment had an astonishing decade of being in every government department doing serious spending on capital schools hospitals obviously housing and worked on every housing um, uh, agenda that came out of the department at the time and so it's familiar um it I, it's not my first time being a civil servant but what really strikes me as as i'm sure it strikes everybody who's in our profession is it's just the energy behind people trying to do the best they can in terms of presenting a policy framework that's clear um and also sort of that's going to deliver good things on the ground and so far um, I mean, it is day four. I've had a little bit of a lead in it. I haven't literally started on Monday. Um, but I've just really struck about civil servants are just so committed and so hardworking and just work relentlessly to get things done and do their absolutely very best. So seriously impressed so far.
3: Thank you. And um, um, tell us, what is top of your intro, Joanna, and why?
2: Um, I've got fairly full in as you can imagine. Um, I'm, uh, I'm obviously uh, going to be very involved and already involved in in, in designing uh, the reform that sits under the white paper. And, you know, the white paper is clearly a very, um, it's a visionary transformational approach for the planning system and, and the application, the actual design of the system, but its actual application. Um, and um, there are really strong propositions in there. Um, we haven't done all the detailed um, design behind it yet. We, it's genuinely no consultation. We're really keen to hear from people to help us to some extent fill in some of the detail and some of the uh, aspects that we need to then consider over the sort of coming months. So huge amounts of work on that is, is on the cards. Obviously the casework um, uh, inbox will be getting busy uh, over the coming weeks. And also I, I, I directly manage the design team within the planning directorate, which people may or may not know so much about. But um, the reform agenda and the department generally and um, obviously this government has a very strong commitment to de- planning's role in delivering design quality. And in my mind, that isn't just the design of a unit of a house. That's the design of the place mm. and spatial planning and design uh, uh you know spatial planning is one uh, uh one parts of the hierarchy of design we design at every spatial scale that's what planning's really about um so that's a really interesting area of work within the directorate and and how that sort of weaves into all other aspects of planning. So sitting alongside Simon Gallagher, a great new colleague and uh, supporting across the whole of the directorate and beyond in the wider departments um, on planning reform and planning policy and and best practice. And obviously working with other people out there in the industry and, and in the profession. So very full entry.
3: And tell me, um, how important is it, do you think, that industry, the uh, communities, uh, the public and private um, sector respond, as it were, to the white, the white paper? And, and do you think, please, that we will get the opportunity to, um, to be consulted on the primary and secondary legislation? before it gets that
2: can't answer the second part of that question because we haven't we haven't got a detailed delivery plan in place yet we're, we're, we're still uh, in the process of consultation um, we are holding a lot of consultation sessions directly I've been on six in the last 48 hours um, And we're really keen that that dialogue continues. And I would genuinely, uh, and thanks for the prompt, encourage people to to look at the white paper. There's a lot of, it is intentionally uh, uh, posing questions. It's asking people to come back. Uh, with their thoughts. And we're very, you know, planning is about places and, and planning is also operating in very particular, both political, environmental, social and built form contexts up and down the country. And we want to understand and get feedback from people as how they can see some of the reforms that are proposed operating in those different contexts, those different sort of spatial contexts, those different um, urban contexts. So please do spend time reading the uh, reading the document and coming back to us.
3: And I don't want to seem hostile um, on question four, uh, at the beginning of what I hope is a beautiful relationship that this show has with you, but how can the government really expect a serious consultation response on the expiry of the duty to cooperate, when we really have absolutely no idea about what would replace that? I know that the government is going to uh, impose, as it were, the housing figures, but the duty to cooperate is also very much about infrastructure and local authorities talking to infrastructure providers. Uh, It seems to me, what is is going to replace that?
2: I think it's one of the areas that we're getting quite a lot of feedback on, so uh, I'm I'm not surprised you've picked it up. The, The white paper didn't go into every corner of the full system. Um, but what we have is a, is a is a very much an intent for this to be genuinely a transformational change in how we do planning, to give um, clarity to the planning system, to have design quality at the heart of it, for it to be more engaging, it to be up to date in using technology and, and digital forms of planning, um, and obviously to be delivering um, on uh, zero carbon agendas as well. So. Um, it didn't go into an, every area, and I think there is work to do, and we will be um, uh, you know, through the consultation and beyond that looking at some of these issues. But what the um, what is behind the objectives in giving out a more a greater clarity? Uh, in terms of housing expectations and housing numbers is that it, it gives individual local authorities greater clarity. Uh, as was mentioned, it may well take out some of the delay that is caused by toing and throwing on the numbers. Um, but mm. I agree with you, that aspect of spatial planning and the joining up, particularly when it comes to bigger bits of infrastructure, mm. um, are critical. When it comes down to a sort of major development scale, um, the white paper talks about the role and function of master plans um, and that they need to sort of set out some of those parameters and also the role and function of design codes which again sort of front load some of those conversations about expectation and opportunities for communities and councils and developers to engage in the preparation of design codes to front load that so that there's greater clarity about expectation as you move through into development management and so on.
3: Thank you Joanna and, and tell me what, what do you think, What well, what is it that government thinks that this infrastructure levy is going to achieve that the current combination of community infrastructure levy and 106 obligations is not achieving?
2: Um, well, I think everybody would uh, probably recognise that the system we have at the moment does take time to get to that point of decision um and so in uh, you know and it hasn't been designed but the objective is to have uh, an infrastructure levy which leaves everybody uh, in the same position in terms of say affordable housing um and funding so overall that it's the same money coming into local government um but that actually it cuts out that sort of uncertainty in that negotiation and secondly i think one of the um drivers behind some of the reform is because some of these aspects of um interface with the planning system for developers can actually sets the entry bar quite high so um, some of the policies are also aimed at trying to make sure that we can diversify uh, the, the private sector and developers and promoters and, and 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 others who want to come in and be providing particularly housing and other forms of development and that they the entry level is lower than it is now so the level of uncertainty and risk and cost to come forward for development on, say, small and medium-sized sites is still very high for some. And as you'll have seen over the years, there's been a strong push for diversifying, um, particularly bringing in small and medium enterprises into the delivery of housing to, to engender a sort of a, 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 a steadier flow of supply as well.
3: OK, that's interesting. Thank you very much. Um, what can you tell us about the, um, the, the timescales very broadly? I appreciate uh, uh, that there is much to plan. But what's your expectation in terms of uh, the timescale for primary and secondary legislation? Have you got any any feel for that that you can share? Uh,
2: we're still focusing on the consultation. Some of we, um, we actually we don't have the detailed plan as yet, I'm afraid.
3: And uh, my final question really is: is this is the opportunity or is the expectation that there is going to be a new system is there a danger that this is an easy pass for councils who still don't have a up-to-date local plan you know with the system which has now been in place for quite some time is familiar to us all um is, is there not a danger that those councils will um use the talk of a new system as an opportunity to to ditch the current? Um, local plans are not yet uh, have not yet been found sound uh, and just postpone yet again um, local plan making and is that something that you're alive to and you could perhaps do something about?
2: Um, I think what what I would advise is having a plan is so much more powerful than not having a plan Um, if you know we would hope that local you know local authorities obviously recognize that in the system we've got the plan is the pivotal way in, in in which they can shape the form of development that's coming forward and the economic benefits and environmental benefits and social benefits that come from that. So it is it is much better to have a plan. So I suppose just in principle, it's really important. People don't take their foot off the gas and don't 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 hold back in terms of pursuing their both their their agendas and and the drivers that are already in their communities to deliver new homes, new public space. Uh, adaptation of the high street, whatever it might be. And it's really important that people continue to pursue those. And the plan is obviously a a critical part of that in plan making.
3: Thank you so much, Joanna, for uh, uh, answering my questions. Now, Um, over to Paul. Paul, what's your question, Joanna?
4: My first question is how do I uh, unmute my my machine? Um, (laughs) uh, Joanna, thank you for coming on the show. Um, uh, I've got a sort of practical question, uh, which arises from the publication of the white paper. I'm starting to be asked by local planning authorities uh, whether or not they should continue with the promotion of what are sometimes very controversial local plans and in one instance I've been asked by a parish council whether there's any point in their reviewing the neighbourhood plan with the whole new system coming over the horizon. So far I've been advising get on with it and that's what I expect government to be saying. Um, Is that what I should be advising or should they be pausing and just waiting for the white paper?
2: Well, local circumstances might dictate, well, obviously dictate, dictate that people should make their own decisions on that. But the thing about planning is that you get a good plan when you really understand or are up to date with what's happening uh, in your local area. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, plan making is not it shouldn't be static in that sense it should always be constantly refining um uh, what the situation is and i think more than ever we're all facing a very different different economic outlook than we thought we were going to have um you know even you could even argue you know what we need from our neighbours and our communities our homes is sort of changing around us isn't it mm-hmm. so I, I i really think that local authorities should be cognizant of that and and you know don't please don't stop stop doing planning um i mean more than ever do we we need a sort of proactive approach to planning and um uh, yes change is difficult is difficult to, to to sort of basically weave in a change process and a policy change process that you ha- you you can only anticipate and you don't quite know its contents but you know we we really do hope to yeah. um uh, be issued as soon as we can, and giving people a heads up as as to its content as soon as we're able to do that. But um, yeah, don't don't stop. You know, keep talking, keep thinking about the future, keep thinking about how the world is changing around us, and also some of the challenges we face like climate change and and, and other aspects. And uh, you know, it's an active, proactive process. You should never do a plan and stop. It should also be about thinking about the future all the time.
4: I, I'm taking that answer as yes, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You like Sorry, that, was, that, was, that was that was really long uh, well.
4: agree <laughs> at the end, that's fine. I don't mind if you agree with me. It takes a while to get there. That's fine, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We're not allowed to cross-examine the guests. I've been told off. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, over to you.
0: Very thank you, uh, Joanna. Um, uh, I, I would like to just change the subject to infrastructure planning, if I may. Given your roles yeah. um, in the past, Ventures Two, and Crosswell, amongst others, and is it inv- envisaged? Um, that there will be refinements to the DCO regime for nationally significant infrastructure projects uh, to help the efficient delivery of what the Prime Minister has called the infrastructure revolution that he and Rishi Sunak have promised? Or, Or is it seen by government that the current infrastructure planning regime is fully fit for purpose?
2: Um, I think, as you'll know, Project Speed was announced um, and that's a cross Whitehall uh, piece of thinking. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, my wider team is in part of looking at that in terms of the, uh, the planning piece.
5: Um,
2: and I think the sort of general the general sense of it, and you guys can, can comment as well as I can, you know, um, the DCO regime has been actually fairly effective. It's got something like a 94% success rate. Um, in terms of the schemes that have gone through it. So that says quite a lot. Um, uh, but I think there's a recognition that if we can, tw- you, know, that we're, we're, you know, Project Speed will look at where we can tweak mm. things in, in the infrastructure delivery cycle. Um, and obviously we'll look at uh, where there's tweaks that mm. can help um, in project delivery and, and as it says, mm. speeding things up. But it's not just about speed. Uh, it's also about mm. um, uh, faster, better and greener Project mm. Speed. So there are wider objectives within there, um, including about environmental outcomes um, and the the role that environmental impact assessments and other aspects play within major projects. Um, And then I think the other thing we're kind of conscious of is that the um, national infrastructure strategies uh, are, are... are uh, dated in various from various years including sort of um, from 2011 onwards so um whether or not we need to be looking at updating some of those so it's it's a it's a live conversation and, and to some extent links back to the conversation we just had about infrastructure planning and the spatial scale of yeah uh, of in- infrastructure yeah. planning different forms of infrastructure
0: and just to rise to that charge so, yes, quickly, it's
2: a live, live conversation
0: uh, it's a very high success rate uh, and the process is quite quick once the application is made but there's an awful lot of lumbering up to the start um, and you know, multiple rounds of consultation when actually legally there's only one needed, perhaps a, a, a fear of challenge if, if you don't do lots and lots of consultations. So I wonder whether that might be the place to look at if there's going to be any streamline. It might be over cautiousness from applicants and a bit of bit of a nudge from government might help. Um, anyway, Sasha I think was next. Mm-hmm. I thought you'd asleep there, Sasha, for a moment. <laughs> yeah,
1: unlike you, I think carefully about my questions. So I You're was, was oh, at
0: the age days. now, Sasha, where, you know, you do fall asleep in the afternoon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and John, I did want to say, I'm in mean, this programme and this show's had many, many interesting effects. I, I just wanted to say, I think it's of huge comfort to me and others that you, in yeah. your first week, have had the courage to come on and and be seen and be heard. And I think it's such a good sign that people in the civil service at senior levels are willing to be tested and be heard, et cetera. So what a great start and thank you. My question is, um, obviously, Mary touched on this, obviously the kind of arrangements and the timescale, which you dealt with, of course, you can't give specifics. But will you also... Um, make a quasi-commitment that in view of what the White Paper says, that the transitional arrangements are taken seriously, that if we are going to have the kind of seismic change to the system, that people are given enough time to, um, to effectively re reformulate, rebalance to deal with it
2: um firstly when a when a barrister says quasi i'm not quite sure how to take that <laughs> anyway anyway to the question um one thing that the white paper also does is very intentionally talk about um local authority resources um and um and making sure that that isn't an afterthought um in any reform program so um there's already and uh, a mention and a, a very significant awareness about um, if you're going, you know, in, in this reform agenda, that it isn't business as usual. And I think I just want to impress that upon people. Mm-hmm. This is this. And again, back to the point about really encouraging people to engage with the white paper. This isn't a sort of tweak. This isn't a, a one new piece of guidance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a it's a much more wide ranging piece of reform. Um, and yeah, we're very conscious of and, and, you know, thinking through all of those issues and making sure that um, resource is and, and how local authorities can go through that process of change and adaptation and transition and the market as well, Um, but that's um, uh, forefront in our mind. So yes, it's very much part of our thinking. Um, uh, We're obviously, um, uh, you know, not far off a spending review as well. So I can't tell you what the outcome of that will be. I don't know, but you know, that is part of, um, that'll be part of the process to sort of look at answering some of those questions.
3: Thank you, you, Joanna. And Chris, over to you for uh, the question you've chosen from the audience for Joanna. You need to unmute yourself, Chris. I
5: think he's better, that way. (laughs) We've all done it. Okay, Okay, my question is in two parts, and it's to pick up on what you've said and to ask a question from Louise Barfield. Um, I'll just give you a minute to think about her question. Well, I say, she's asking, is a review of London's Greenbelt in your top five things to do? Okay, so I wanna give you a little bit of time to think about that. (laughs) Um, My question more generally is that um, you said, you know, and, and you're absolutely right, in most instances, Um, To have a plan is much more powerful. It's a plan-led system. You have a plan. Agreed. But there are a small number of authorities who don't do that. They tend to be Greenbelt authorities, like Castle Point, like Wirral. um, And they, I think, have calculated on the basis of they're better not to have a plan. And so the first part of the question is, is to say, are you going to do something about that? Because I think a lot of people are looking and seeing nothing's been done about that. Is there an intention to get serious with these authorities who don't? And I'll just say, um, I know you were born in a very interesting and unusual place. Presumptions on his, that's my owl, Presumptions on his surfboard. He's listening to the Chili Peppers. And uh, one of their songs is um, on the Stadia Arcadia. Is slow cheater which is how we might describe Wirral and Castle Point, slow cheaters. So that's the first part and then we'll come back to the green bell. Are you going to you know get serious with these authorities?
2: Um, it's a difficult question to answer isn't it because we're, we're, we're looking at a reform agenda that is exactly about encouraging local authorities to be on the front foot in terms of the plan making process um, and also to make plan making uh, more streamlined, actually, it, okay. it's, it's kind of it's a sort of an interesting kind of composition, really, in terms of the reform. It's saying that um, you, you front load a lot of the conversation so that we're clearer on what the plan will actually deliver at the end of the day through design codes and um, a sort of area based um, policy. Um, And you actually, for some, for example, for areas that would be identified for growth, the proposition is that you'd in effect have have an outline planning permission. So that will sort of, sort of that forces some of the forces and encourages some of the conversation to happen very early and around a design code to actually have a genuine conversation, which with with a design code enabling community engagement on exactly what good will look like. You know, what are we expecting from the development industry? So I suppose I'm going to answer your question with a question. If you haven't got that kind of plan in place that's a bigger risk even than now um so mm-hmm. i think there's the sort of motivations might switch and, and move rob somewhat in terms of what the new reform is proposing and the plan making system that we're proposing it almost makes the plan even more important um and so i think that is probably a different incentive okay. um i'm going to yeah, so I, I'd i say that's quite one one aspect of it. Do you want me to come on to the green belt
5: question? Yeah, I, get, I get your so point, I... which is a car- more of a carrot uh, than a stick, and we don't cross-examine our guests. Just so you know, so we just uh, <laughs> I'm going to accept that answer. There's no follow-up question. But to to Louise's oh, question, <laughs> to Louise's question, you know, a, a green belt review of, of London is that you know potentially on the cards.
2: Uh, any review of the green belt will all be a, will always be a decision for um, the Secretary of State and and um, wider politicians um, and so that 's not something i 'm going to comment on now um, uh, it's as we know the, you know the green belt is is fulfills all sorts of different functions um, and um, uh, as we know you know land use planning is about the use of land so um, uh, you know it, it, that will always be something that will ultimately be uh, in my opinion and it's it will always be a sort of a political decision so it's not one for me to sort of be suddenly (laughs) creating policy about that would not be my role to do that
5: i understand thank you very much
0: um, Chris, I'm so pleased that uh, you mentioned presumption, because you reminded me of something, that in my new chambers, the guy next door, uh, who's a very old friend of mine, is a, um, is, is, I think, ornithologist, is that the right word? He's, he's yes. a lover of birds, and I was thrilled to find in his room what may very well be a, a uh, love match for presumption. Um, I believe this is or was, and he was dead before he was Used, I have a clap so I a clapper, Killy. So we'll sort this out later, Chris. Maybe we can set up
1: a private chat for the two of them. Can um, I just, can can just apologise to all our RSPB members? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Joanna, can I Did say that, you I, like I found that rather disturbing? disturbing. Okay.
3: <laughs> Thank you very much, Joanna, for your uh, kind attention and
0: care in answering all our difficult questions. And back to you, Charlie. Thank you very much, Mary, and Thanks again, uh, uh, Joanna. Uh, now we've got um, uh, Champion of the Week next, and uh, Sasha, you're going to um, give the praise out this week.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want Joanna to have heart failure in her first week in the job, but I'm going to praise uh, her minister, the Secretary of State, and I don't want him to have heart failure either, with me praising him after what I've said about West Ferry over the summer. But I'm going to praise him because I think the announcement to devote £12.2 billion pounds to the provision of affordable housing is wonderful and it's a point I know Chris and I always make and I'm sure Mary and Paul and you do as well about the provision of housing that often in inquiries we hear from those that have not from those that don't. <laughs> and I think 12.2 billion being given to provide at least 180,000 homes for those that need it the most and have the least ability to get is wonderful and you go into politics to change people's lives and this does that so that is my champion of the week.
0: Well said, Sasha. Um, nudge, nudge of the week. Um, well, my main nudge of the week was going to be um, to, uh, to the Secretary of State again, actually, and those working with him, to think about updating the planning practice guidance uh, in light of the huge number of changes that have gone on through the summer. We thought there would be some by now. I, I did have a look um, about 10 minutes before we started, and I couldn't see that there had been any. Of course, the nature of the PPG is they might have gone on while I've been talking, but um, it would be very helpful to have um, an update. And just to follow up on something Joanna said as well, uh, a, a further nudge to you, dear viewers, if you're interested in the planning white paper and you care about it, whichever way you think, put in a consultation response. Um, I think there's a clear um, cry, genuine cry for help and ideas uh, from government. And um, so uh, contribute, it, it takes time, etc., cetera, but um, uh, please uh, think about doing it. Um, now, that's the end, uh, I think, of our first um, uh, first show of season two. Um, thank you very much I'll, for joining us again. i mention oh, one thing yes. which I completely forgot to mention earlier on. Yes. Chris and I are involved in, a, a,
4: a, in a, an issue with regard to the uh, standard methodology and its application in the North which is taking place on Monday. So those in the North that will be interested in that, they'll receive details of that.
3: And so Can I mention one thing which is tomorrow, not the Oxford Conference, your opportunity to hear Jonathan Easton doing a fabulous legal update, plus Baroness Brown and Bob Kreslake.
0: Fantastic. Um, yes, no, I'll be watching. Not, not least for Jonathan's uh, brilliant jokes, which are almost as bad as mine. Uh, <laughs> if it's Jonathan, it'll be good. Absolutely, it really will. Um, so, thank you again for for our um, for joining us in our season opener, and particular thanks to Joanna uh, once more. Um, thanks also to all the questions. We we only had time to answer or, or to ask. Uh, Joanna, one of them, please do feel free to email us once we announce our, our guests next week, we have got them lined up but we'll we'll tell you who they are on Monday. Um, info at havewegotplanningnewsforyou.com or just go to havewegotplanningnewsforyou.com and the contact details are there and also please do let us know any suggestions you might have for cases or decisions or topics, topics you'd like us to cover, we're here to help you so um, please do let us know if there's anything we can do. Um, and don't forget your donation to the NHS or the charity of your choice. You'll hear more of that for the moment. Uh, in the meantime, I can say that having drunk Malibu now uh, for the first time in about
5: 24 years, um, I feel 16 again and it's, it's not as bad as I feel it. Anyway, bye. just before we go, I said you were you were born somewhere interesting. Just tell the viewers, Joanna, where you were born.
2: I was, I was born in the Catherine Bibby Hospital in Mombasa and the oh. first house I lived in. Um, my house my dad who's a planner architect designed and built and we it was a very small little white house with no glass in the windows and the sea breeze would cool the house and uh, and we ha- and we owned the little bit of beach in front of the house and there was no get no wall between us and the beach so i was born on the indian ocean in kenya oh, lovely. so that's my that's my that's my Hasselhoff moment
0: <laughs> well that was the show we hope you enjoyed it if so uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday and it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.